This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. No, I was just commenting that you're looking scary as ever. Me? Uh, when my face was right up next to the, next to yeah. the camera. <laughs> you're like hovering over the camera. Yeah. Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Build Face. What's up, man? Oh, nothing. It's been two weeks. Yeah. We screwed up last week. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> oh, how you been? Doing well. Side projects keeping me interested. Yeah. Client project wrapping up. You learned about Edward, or I almost said Edward Norton, but that's a different dude than <laughs> Emperor Norton. Yeah. Yeah. I was just reading about Emperor Norton. Yeah. The self-appointed emperor of San Francisco. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't know about that. I knew about that guy. I, I had heard about it briefly, and then for some reason I just went to go look it up. I don't know what made me think of it, but I was not disappointed. He's pretty crazy. Yeah. It's he's it's a super interesting – they had like a parade in his honor when he died or something. Well, we have parades for everything here. Yeah. Actually, Tony's in our chat room. Tony's saying he was a, he declared himself the emperor of the U.S., not just the San Francisco, the United States. He said that he was the emperor of the United States. Oh. That's, uh, but nobody knew except for San Francisco. <laughs> that's amazing. Have you heard of Bummer and Lazarus? Are you mm-hmm. familiar with? No. These two dogs. Oh, the dogs that ran around San Francisco? Yes. Yeah. And there was a huge dog problem in San Francisco at the time. So people were leaving like poisoned meat out. To try to like kill off some of the stray dogs, but these that's two were, were kept I don't alive. Care. Oh yeah, that's <sighs> that's messed up. Yeah, but but these two were really accomplished ratters. Yeah, and you know the rat problem was even worse than the dog problem. So in most places, you know, they were fed and taken care of. Huh. And then one day, some drunk kicked one of the dogs and killed it, and there was uh, like a riot on the streets. Ugh. They had to put that guy into custody for his own protection. <laughs> and also because he kicked a dog. Right. This city. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Lots of, <laughs> lots of things happening there in that city. Anyway, Bummer and Lazarus is also a very delicious gin. Is it is, really? That is distilled nearby on okay. Treasure Island. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about testing? Yeah. It's been a while since we talked about testing. Yeah. I've done a fair amount of it lately. Yeah. I feel like I turned a corner in the last two weeks. I really feel like I bumped up. I, so I started a new project on Monday and the tests that I've been writing have been more fun to write and have left me feeling better about everything at the end of the day than ever before. Like I've always understood testing like that I should be doing it. And I've been, obviously I've been a pretty big proponent that we all should be doing it. And I knew that in theory, it would be for the best, but I, I hadn't ever felt 100% comfortable with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But after this week, after the past two weeks, the past I don't know what happened last week that kind of put me in the right mindset for this. Maybe it was when I wrote that blog post two weeks ago that just thinking through that stuff put me in a better place to move forward with it. Because you really had to think about like the nitty gritty of it. I guess. And like- and- yeah. Explaining it to someone else. They say that like teaching is the best way to learn. Yeah. More than anything, it was like in that blog post, one of the things I did was write a category on NS string that reversed, you know, it just returned a reverse string. And that was mainly because 
they had that like Brit wrote that in our in the Ruby version of the post, right? Um, but Ruby has a dot reverse on string. They just have an instance method on string called reverse, and it just returns the reverse string. So I wanted to mimic that without whatever. The way I showed it in the post was I got it to green by literally just returning the literally reversed string that I was looking for. And then right. in the blog post, I went straight from there to a fully fleshed out category method, right? Mm-hmm. And with no more tests, zero tests backing that beyond that first test that said, if I pass in these letters in this order, I should get them back in these letters in this order, right? Right. And like the feedback that I got from you and from Tony and from uh, I think other people said the same thing was that it was jarring to jump from literally the reverse string to this big method. Did, is that unfamiliarity with the language? Because it really is a one-line method, but with a block, right? Right. Roughly. I think you make a mutable string for storage. In, in my implementation? Yeah, the implementation of the category is only a couple lines. It just looks big because of the block. Right. But are you talking like about how big the method is or just that you didn't oh, add a second test yeah, to that. inform the creation of the method? Because that. you needed to get back to fail. You needed to see that when you try to reverse a second string, this obviously will fail because it's hard-coded to the first string. And right. then that will encourage you to write a more dynamic method. So I kind of skipped that step. And I kind of skipped it on purpose. So I never wrote a second test for that string to force me to write the first test. And it comes from a conversation that I had with Pat Brisbane, who's a Ruby developer here. It comes from a conversation I had with him of like, when I was first getting into this, is like, you know, do you need to write that second test? And that's, that's the step that I think everybody has problems with when they're moving into TDD, right? Is like saying, if I go by TDD, I need to write a test that fails, right? And then I need to make that test pass with as little code as possible. That is a big point in TDD. Then, based on this kind of idealist point of view for TDD, then you would write another test that forces you to change your implementation, which is what you're saying, right? Right. So now I need to abstract away the implementation. But if all we're doing is returning, like in all seriousness, if all we're doing is returning something that's obviously wrong, it's hard to convince people to, to go through those three steps. You know, uh, write a failing test, make the test pass, write another failing test, make that test pass, right? Four, so you have like f- these four, four different things you have to do. I'm kind of of the opinion at this point, and I think it's definitely helping me move forward because it's a better mindset for me to be in. But I'm of this mindset of like, and it's something that Pat said, where I was kind of asking about something that was similar to this. Like, well, I got the test to pass with this, so shouldn't I write another test that makes me do this? He goes, well, are you an idiot? It's like, no. It's like, then don't write stupid methods. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know that, that returning the literal string backwards isn't what you actually want. So make that jump. Now that you have it green, you can lean on it. You can say... Now that it's green, I can change the implementation to something that still keeps it green, but is more abstracted. It's just about getting going from red to green, and then it's that refactor. So the actual order is red, green, refactor, red, green, refactor, red, green, refactor, over and over. Right. 
that refactor step can be I think it can be bigger than most people think about it being. Most people think about it being like, well, maybe I break out some helper methods. No, if you wrote a hard-coded string in as a return value, just change it to not do that, and you're going to be fine. Do you think most people do this because like typical primer to TDD is going to use these very contrived examples to illustrate that very point? Yeah, I do. But when it comes to actually doing this, I mean – you're smart enough to make that leap. Right. Like obviously this hard coded string is not yeah. gonna work. It's programming, it's not meant to be incredibly simple. Like you're gonna have to take some leaps now and then. Yes, one hundred percent I think that's I think that's the truth. And and the the problem is it's hard to explain this stuff over a blog post. Especially when you're trying to get people into T D D the it's it's hard to say yes, you should be writing tests first. But no, you don't have to have 100% code coverage, or at least you don't have to have 100% unit test code coverage. You know what I mean? You don't have to test every single iteration of every single method through code coverage, through unit tests. And there's some things that you just don't have to test. If Tony yesterday, Tony was writing a method, all we're doing is, um, and I think this is something that people run into very quickly, and it's something that feels crappy to test and so it's one of the things that that people bounce off of when they're trying to get into testing so tony's trying to write a wrap not trying to write i mean he wrote it but uh he wanted to store username and password in a keychain right super basic so we're using lockbox for that actually because we're trying it out on this project so he writes a wrapper around lockbox just to simplify it because we don't need to store crazy stuff so all we need to do is you know, we want our own API around that to make it easy. So he creates like an authentication store class. And all it does is it has a setter for set username and password. And then it has a getter for the password and a getter for the username. Right. Mm-hmm. So he does what everybody does and what is probably the right thing to do. And he starts trying to write tests for it. And he immediately runs into, well, do I stub out lockbox? Do I, how do I make these tests work if, if I stub out lockbox or do I stub out the keychain? That's even harder. That even, that sucks even more to stub out the keychain. Like why should I, should I do that? And I just told him, I was like, don't just don't delete the test. Don't do it. Like this is, this is such a stupid wrapper. If there's no way to test the behavior of a method without literally testing the implementation of the method. Right, his tests are literally going to be like when I call this method, does this other object give me that thing? Then it passes. You're not testing your code anymore. You just aren't. Right. You know what I mean, I've definitely bumped up against this, and I and yeah. I think it's because you think, all right, I kind of want to get into testing. This is a really simple class. Yes. So you think exactly. Oh, this be will be simple to test. to test. Yeah. But the inverse is true. The thinner the wrapper the more difficult it becomes to really test what you think you should be testing. Because yeah. you don't want to be testing lockbox. No, but no, no. Once you're stubbing out lockbox, you're testing what? That methods get called when you yeah. call them? Like, that's, that's silly. asinine. I, I remember what class I ran into this on. It was when I was doing, um, and, the, and it was the conversation I had with Pat. I was doing that static table view stuff. And so I had like a, I had a section, I think I had a table view, static table view section class that was just a wrapper around, I think it was a mutable ordered set and we couldn't figure out why I used a set instead of an array, but whatever. But it was just a wrapper around that with some type safety and I think one callback method. 
And I was trying to test it. And that's what I was talking to Pat about. It was like, well, how do I test that the internal set actually has this object added to it without exposing the internal set? And it's like, <laughs> don't. That's that's testing the implementation. You know what I mean? If if your thing is just another – is just a wrapper around a set or an array or a collection or the keychain or if your thing is just a super thin wrapper that doesn't actually have behavior of its own and it's just farming out to these other things, it's not worth your time. It really isn't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that that's that's hard. I think that's somehow harder than saying, yes, I should test everything. Because that opens the question, well, what's too small to test? And that opens the question, well, when do I test and when don't I? And the big problem is that there aren't good, solid answers that anyone can give you 100% of the time you should test these things, 100% of the time you shouldn't test these things. You know, I think it's a good rule of thumb that you don't have to test these thin wrappers. But I, I think the conclusion I came to is: um, Does the behavior in this class branch? Yeah. If it's going, if it's literally just one code path, when you call this, it's a one-to-one straight into something else. It's probably not worth testing. Yeah. If yeah. you're in there and you're branching, if you have an if statement and yeah. there's two possible return values, test, test that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because that's that's conditional logic, right? That introduces logic to the problem. So if Tony's writing the same wrapper, and in one case it kicks it off to the keychain, and in the other case it kicks it off to user defaults, that should be tested. But that's not just necessarily testing the implementation at that point. That is saying, like, when I give you this, this thing should get hit. And when I give you this, this thing should get hit. You know what I mean? Like, that needs to be verified, to some extent, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you find that testing leads you to, to creating more functional objects with less state, like very much value in, value out, or Maybe. do you find yourself doing something that mutates an object, sending a message to it, and then asserting that the state on that thing has changed in a way that you're expecting? I've found the former to be true, that it's making me lose state, like remove state from my objects. Probably the former, but I've been moving in that direction independently. So it's hard for me to say if like, I'm thinking about all the stuff that I've written over the past few days and it definitely all feels more functional. I mean, I've been doing like a networking stack. So there's a lot of request factories involved. We can talk about the networking stack another time. Cause I'm, I, I should get further down the road with it, but I'm really happy with, with the way it's been going. But there's like a lot of factories and a lot of like you said, like value in, value out stuff. And maybe it's through a callback, but I do this thing and then I get this callback and I should have this other thing. You know what I mean? And the state isn't super important. Like it's like setting up a URL session or creating an instance of a, a, a client, you know? Right. At the risk of oversimplifying, I've started to see void return methods as like a smell. Yeah. They just raised this tiny flag in my head. Yeah. Like maybe I'm, maybe this, you know, the, the concept that this method is trying to wrap is in the wrong place. Right. Why doesn't it need to return something? Can I just have it return a thing? And if I have, if I just have it return a thing, would it be easier to make assumptions based on that? You know what I mean? Would it be easier, even if it's not testing, even if it's not for testing, like it does feel like having I don't want this to get back into functional programming, but if it if it does go back to value in value out, then your methods tend to be simpler. There's less there is less mutation, there is less state, there's less that can go wrong to 
make it super general and probably incorrect, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it, for the lack of a better term. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, it feels like you're throwing something down the well. Like, it's a void. You're just you're throwing it into the void, really, right. and then just hoping that the right thing happens. And then once you're, once you're getting into concurrency, mm-hmm. you're, you're hosed. That's, yep. That way leads madness. Yeah. I had another breakthrough today because today was like up and down for me. For, on this API stack, I've been using um, Specta and Expecta and OCMock, which is kind of – at least it's my standard stack at this point. It's the stack that I'm happiest with. I, I really like the way it all works. I like the way Expecta specifically feels working with it. It feels really nice. The other thing that Specta has is – or maybe it's in Expecta. I don't, I'm not sure which, which one of the two libraries adds this, but this concept of shared example groups – these are something else has been pulled from Ruby and they don't actually use them in Ruby that much because they can be a smell for code duplication. Basically what shared example groups do is it lets you define a set of tests, right? So I say, for example, I have a bunch of factories for different request objects for different API endpoints. You know what I mean? And so I want to make sure that they all behave like a request to this specific API. So I can make like three assertions based on that. I can make an assertion that the request should have these API keys in the header. The request should ha- hit this base URL. The request should do uh, – there's something else, but I can't remember what it is. You know what I mean? There's a, a set of expectations I would have for anything that behaves like that thing, right? Mm-hmm. So now anytime I have any – URL request in the system, I can just say it behaves like a request to the client API. Meaning that it, it's checking like the base components of the request, the non-unique parts. It's checking the non-unique parts, yeah, but it's doing it. So basically you create, the way it works in Specta is you create a dictionary and I pass in like a dictionary with a response key. So I create the response, stick it in a dictionary, pass it off to the shared examples group. I pull the response out inside the shared examples group, make three expect, make three assertions on it, and then it bounces back and keeps going with the tests. There, there's a bunch of benefits to this, especially in this specific use case for me. One is that I'm able to add these base expectations to every single response without ever, ever having to write those tests again. And if I ever decide that my definition of what every API request should behave like, if I ever decide that that's changed, I just add a test in this shared examples group. And now every URL request in the system has to conform to that in order to pass their own tests. Mm-hmm. So you can see why this could be a smell of, of code duplication, right? If a bunch of objects are acting the same, that's probably not a great thing. Or you may have du- duplicate code in some places. In this case, the reason that they all have duplicate behavior is because they're all coming from a base mutable request factory. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting the initial, the totally bare bones, this is everything that should ever be on any request in the system, should at least have these things. So just to play devil's advocate, why not just test the base mutable request? And then have all the requests use that when they build themselves. They, they do use that when they build themselves. Okay, but, but I'm saying if you test the base request, why do you need the shared example group? Because by using shared example groups, and that's not, I don't think that's playing devil's advocate at all. I think that's a totally valid thing, and it's something I thought about. 
But by using shared examples group, what I'm doing is I'm separating behavior from implementation at that point. I'm just saying it's not coupled to the implementation at all. I am saying for a fact that all of these requests should act like this. If I decide to pull one of them out of this base URL request system where I ask this other factory for a base request, if I ever say like, you know what, I'm going to, for whatever reason, I'm going to create this one separately from all the others and I'm going to create it in a different way. It still has to act like everything else in the system has to act unless I make a conscious decision to change the tests for it. You know what okay, I'm saying? That, yeah, that makes sense. Because now it seems like you're being more explicit about every request instead of saying, I'm testing the base implementation and then this thing is correct just sort of incidentally because it's using this base behavior. Exactly, exactly. Because okay. the only way, the only other way to make that assertion, the only other way to codify that is to mock out the base request and make an assertion that I'm asking the base request thing for a request object. You know what I'm saying? But then you'd have to expose that and you might not want to expose. Then I'd have to expose that and, and I don't want the tests or anything to care about the actual method of construction of these things. All I care about is that this request, it acts like uh, any other request in the system. It acts like a post request. It acts like an authenticated request and it hits this endpoint, right? So those are, those three would be shared example groups. It hits this endpoint. It has th this payload. It feels awesome to describe specifically in this case. Like I came off yesterday feeling so great about all this stuff. It feels great to describe URL requests inside this API client system this way because you can look at my specs for any request and you know then how the server acts. It's like describing the server, the server's behavior inside my spec and then I just make my request object conform to the spec and it'll conform to the server. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when you're testing your request specs, what are you mocking? Nothing. Because you're really just checking instances of NSURL all requests? I'm doing, yeah. All I'm doing is getting a request back from this factory. I'm passing it stuff. I'm saying, give me a login request for this email and this password. And I'm testing. I'm making assertions on the return object that the request has all these parameters and it has this payload of the username and password serialized to JSON. How are you testing more of the end-to-end -end use of this, though? Like, I take a URL request, I perform it, and I get this back. Essentially, the way the system works is in layers. So I have this base, this bottom layer, which is my network client, right? All it does is it has, like, one method on it. It's, like, perform request, and it has a completion block. And the completion block returns an ID, JSON object, and an error. Very reusable. Like you could use it on, on any project, really. Infinitely reusable, yeah. I, I keep making a joke that it feels like AF networking light, but light, light as in 30 lines. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like it's – and obviously AF networking does a hell of a lot more than this thing does. You know what I mean? This is very, very simple. But um, it's using NSURL session and it feels great. And that whole thing is tested – on its own by mocking out the network itself, like using OH HTTP stubs and mocking out the response. So 
at this that thing doesn't care about literally doesn't care about anything. All it cares about is that if I get a request and I get JSON back from the request, I return that JSON. So I can hand it requests to like example.com slash test.json and then just stub out that URL and return a JSON fixture and then make assertions that the JSON fixture that I get back is this dictionary. Mm-hmm. And then and then I test so that's the happy path. And I test all the sad paths by testing that, you know, if I get a four oh four error or something. If the if the if the API responds in an error, I get nothing for the object and I get an error, the error comes back up the chain. You know, or if the JSON doesn't parse correctly, then I get the JSON error returned and nothing as the object. So that's tested. That's tested like that's got five I think five tests on it. It's super simple. So there's that. There's these request factories that I was talking about, and there would be like one factory method for each endpoint that we need to hit, and it's it all it does is create the requests. Then I have object factories, right? And so those are those are all tested, like I was saying. Those are all tested very well. Then I have object factories that take in a dictionary and return an object constructed from that dictionary. So that's where I do the mapping between JSON, the server sent JSON and the object in the system. And I do stuff like, uh, you know, turn a date string into a date and, you know, URL strings into actual URLs and that kind of stuff. So that's, there's those three pieces. And then the glue that sits and puts them together is this API client, right? That's what you interact with. So you say, you know, log in with username, password, and then I pass a completion block there, and that completion block gets to be typed and returns a user object and an error, right? And now all I do inside the API client, it's literally five lines. All I do in the API client is I get the right request, and I pass in the username and password that were provided to me. I hand that request to the network client. I get a user by passing the return JSON over to the user factory, and then I just return that user. And an error, you know, or no, sorry. Then I call the completion block with user and error, right? So if user comes back nil, user's nil and, and the error gets passed through, you know what I mean? So the error makes it all the way from the network client, all the way back up to my public interface with this thing. Um, the user object gets passed around or the, you know, get goes through all the stuff that it needs to go through, but makes it all the way back up here and everything below that is tested. So the thing that was killing me today, I spent, it was just, it was like a battle. It was like a, just, I felt beat down like two hours ago. I was just like not feeling great. Testing this API client that, like you said, it it doesn't have a conditional in it. It doesn't have a single conditional. It acts a lot like a controller in the Rails sense or in in the pure sense in that all it does is it, has a little bit of state because it holds on to a network client, but that's not important state. You know what I mean? That's just lazily initiated, initialized. All it does is it gets things from different places, puts them together and hands you back something. So testing that without testing the implementation was really, really, it was proving to be like really difficult. I, when I, I made a first pass at it and I had three tests and each test was like 10, 12 lines. It was like f- almost 40 lines total, maybe maybe about 40 lines total for one endpoint. 
and the tests were verbose and I was mocking everything out, right? I had to make ex- – like I was mocking out the network and making all these you know, expectations based on the that the request was getting passed in correctly, making expectations that I was hitting – I was grabbing the right request from the factory. It was ugly and I just felt shitty about it. And I grabbed um, Prem who works here and we refactored it down to maybe 10, 15 lines. So I moved it from three individual tests into one test, which cut down on like the overall setup. You know what I mean? Like I only had to mock things once instead of three times. I only had to create one client instead of three. And then it had essentially three expectations inside that one test. But it's still like it was better and it felt good moving in that direction. But it was I was still looking at it going like, Dude, I have dozens and dozens and dozens of these endpoints. You know what I mean? Like, I can't do this for everyone. This isn't sustainable. And I was literally just sitting there feeling crappy about it, not sure if I should move forward, not sure how to move forward. I ended up deleting it. I know I'm not going to write these tests. I should listen to my instinct here. And that's kind of one of my other big breakthroughs has been, like, listen to your gut. Like, if it if it sucks to test, you're either testing it incorrectly or it's bad code. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like it's probably a, it's either a sign that your API wrong is wrong or it's a sign that you're thinking about the problem wrong. Luckily for me, it turned out to be the latter. I think um, I think I need to, and I started doing it right before I came down here to record. But I think where I'm headed is thinking of this entire networking stack as if it's something that I can just pick up out of this project and bundle up in maybe a CocoaPod. And now it's an API, an Objective-C API client that my client can use. And that's the way it should be built anyway, right? If, if this is built correctly, you, I should be able to pick it up out of this project and drop it in this other project over here and be able to hit these same endpoints. So I went on a, we went walking for coffee and I was talking to some guys and one of the guys, Chris was like, maybe you're trying to stub at the wrong level. You know what I mean? I'm trying, I was trying to stub at the first level down. I was trying to stub at the network client, which is the implementation. My goal was to only ever have to stub the network once inside that network client. If I test that the network client can make you actually make URL requests, then I don't care at that point. And I can just mock, I can create mock objects for it and just return stuff. But that, that's what led me down this 40 line nonsense. Right. Instead, if I test it at a much higher level and I think of this as being the acceptance test for an entire feature, right? So the feature for this project, if I look at this API client as being the project itself, the feature for this project is that I can hit an endpoint and get a user back. For example, I can log in and I can get a user back. By treating it like an integration test, it becomes much easier to test. I don't have to mock out anything. The way I'm going to do it, I think, I'm like 99% sure, I wrote it out and I immediately felt like this weight lifted off my chest. I was like, okay, yes, yeah, that feels good. That feels like a test that makes sense. The way I test it is by stubbing out the network for the request, you know what I mean? By saying, by basically saying like, I tell OHTTP stubs that, I like wrote a helper method around it, but basically like I pass in a request, I test that the two requests, the request the stub is getting and the request I sent it are actually equal, which, you know, comparing like the 
URL and the headers and the body, that stuff. If it's the actual request, then return the file, like return this specific file, right? You just have fixtures for this? Yeah, yeah, just JSON fixtures. Okay. But by doing it at that level, I don't have to care about where the request is coming from. I don't have to care about what's parsing the JSON into a user. I don't even have to care about the network client. All I care about is that I'm going to put up this wall between myself and the network and say that this is what I should receive if this request is sent. And then get the user from their turn block and then just assert that it's the right user. Six lines, I think. Like it's it's barely longer than the method. It uses the method in the way that the method will be used in the real world. The only difference is the expectation after and the three lines of setup before. Mm-hmm. But to be clear, the only reason you were able to or you got to this point and this works for you is because all of the components inside – are already well tested. Yes. So I wouldn't want to rely on just this. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I wouldn't want to rely on just a unit test or sorry, just an, I keep calling it an integration test and everyone upstairs keeps yelling at me about it, but I keep thinking of it as an integration test. Cause I do think it's full stack. It's just full stack in the context of this is like a thing, right? This is its own little world here that I'm building. I think strictly speaking, that makes sense. You're testing the integration of individual units, right? Right. That's how I keep thinking of it. So yeah, like I wouldn't want to depend on just this, but given that before even writing this, I think there's like 27, 28, not that the number matters, but like I have a large amount of tests just covering the other three objects in this one pipeline. You know what I mean? I have that, the behavior of those three classes, solid, Absolutely solid. You know what I mean? Like there's no doubt in my mind that those are performing the way I expect them to, that everything there is working as expected. So testing the glue layer by just having them do what they're supposed to do and checking the result seems very clean. It seems very easy to do. Like that's easy for me to keep up with this versus keeping up with trying to write 40 lines per endpoint. 40 lines where most of them are duplicated even. And not able to be extracted either because it's all expectations based on the specific request and you know mocking that the network client gets this exact request and all this crap like that. You know what I mean? It's just not tons and tons of pseudo duplication. You know what I mean? Like duplication that's just different enough for me to not be able to easily extract it and just feeling crappy about it the whole time and – like, yes, the test works and the test passes and the test verifies the behavior. But if it felt that crappy to write today, what's it going to feel like writing that same test, you know, a month from now when I've written 20 of them? Yep. You know what I mean? Are you actually going to pull this thing out into a pod and then just like pull it back into your project? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I think it'll be set up to be able to do that easily. But I don't think the client doesn't require that. I think that they could extract it very easily. None of the business logic is going to be in their view code, you know. So it will be very easy to bundle this up into a pod if they want to do that going forward. But I'm just doing like a mental separation more than anything right now. Right. So I didn't watch the RailsConf keynote, but how does everything we just talked about relate to what DHH had to say? I I didn't watch it either, but (laughs) I want to. This weekend, I'm like going to curl up in front of the TV. <laughs> With bourbon. Bourbon. 
maybe in like a robe, <laughs> you know, just enjoy it. <laughs> you own a robe? No, I don't own a robe. Um, I'll get you a robe. I'll, I'll, a robe? My, I'll, I'll wear my wife's robe. It's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> She's like half your size, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah at most. <laughs> no, so I haven't seen it either, but I do know that from what I can understand, it sounds what he's what it sounded like he said isn't what he meant. What it sounded like he said was testing is dumb. Don't do testing. What he meant was don't be dogmatic about testing and don't over rely on unit tests when you can use integration tests. In that case, I think that everything that I've been talking about falls almost directly in line with there with that. Right. I don't think that everything needs to be tested. I told Tony specifically not to test that stuff. Like don't test for the sake of testing. If I said, it's a class in our system. We have to test it. Like that's being dogmatic about testing. That's going too far, right? If I had forced Tony to write an ugly, crappy test for this keychain wrapper, that would have been what DHH was talking about. If I had said, no, well, I have to have a unit test for every class in my system, so I can't just delete these. I have to unit test this and have an integration test for the API client. You know what I mean? That would have been being dogmatic. That would have been not relying on integration tests. Again, this writing an integration test for it as opposed to a unit test for it means that I'm able to save myself time. I mean, the problem lent itself well to an integration test, so why not use an integration test? Why would I why would I force myself to write a unit test just to say that I wrote a unit test for it? When it's taking your time and not really doing anything it's of not, value. It's not an added benefit over just testing the stack. I mean, again, I, I agree with that, at least that part of what he said. I don't think that you should be over-reliant on integration tests either. I think that can be dangerous. Like I said, I wouldn't trust just this integration test. Right. For more, more than anything else, because if I just trusted this integration test, if something breaks, now I got to figure out what exactly broke. There's a bunch of moving parts here. If... All I know is that user came back nil all of a sudden. Like that's going to take some hunting, you know what I mean, to figure out where where in this line did it come back nil when it shouldn't have came back nil. Versus if I have an integration test failure that says user came back nil and an unit test failure that says, hey, I expected this thing, but I got this thing, so I'm returning nil instead. Bam. I know exactly where to look. I, I just jump to that, fix that test, and then the integration test fixes itself. So I think what I hear you saying is that Im- the implicit testing that you get by integration testing something works for really, really thin sort of like glue code. Yeah, more traditional kind of controller-ish logic, right? Like I still don't think I would test view controller code with unit tests because I would try to drive the UI and make sure that the view controller reacts accordingly. Mm-hmm. Because again, that class doesn't necessarily have its own state. It's just reacting to things and telling other things to make actions. I would have those other actions tested. You know, I would have any actual behavior tested as much as possible. I'm using the term very loosely here, but this API client that I'm talking about is essentially a controller. Like in that it is glue code. It is code that just takes input from various things and then returns a result as a computation of those things. Makes sense to me. I do feel reinvigorated about it, though. And I still need to figure out the 
we haven't gotten to the UI side of this code yet, which is kind of nice. Like I'm just building this API client out first based on their docs and you know, I don't have wireframes yet. So once I get those, I'll start on those. But until then I got plenty of APIs, you know, endpoints to build out and just building an API client as if it's a standalone API client. It lets me treat it better than if I built it alongside the view that needed that information. Right. Do you think you'll try some, some sort of like view model approach when you get the wireframes? You can look at it and see like it's dependent on this data and here are sort of the different states that this view can be in, but divorce it from the view and say, okay, here's what this view model needs to serve. I initialize it with this thing. I can assert, yeah. you know, given this condition that you're giving me this value. Yeah. And then you just hook it up to your view and, and it's it going to work. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that that's what I'm going to shoot for here. I don't think, I don't know that I'm going to go full blown reactive cocoa on it Mm -hmm. just because I'm not familiar enough with that library and I'm inching closer and closer to that paradigm, but I would want to use it on internal stuff more than anything, not because I don't trust the library, but just to get familiar with it. You know what I mean? So I'm not wasting client time on it, but I definitely think that the, at least the view model stuff is going to be a good first step and I'll, it'll be fun to see how that works with this kind of testing stuff. Mm -hmm. I have one last question for you, kind yes. of going back to your blog post. Okay. What were the differences between the two, given that you have a compiler and Brit does not? Yeah. So that's another thing that it was intended to be the main point that I was making with the blog post. TDD on Ruby, one of the main things is you just keep running your tests and they keep failing, right? So you write a test for this class, you run the tests, the, cl- the tests tell you that this thing doesn't exist. So you go and create that thing. You run the tests. This method doesn't exist. You write the method. Run the tests. Now the method doesn't return the right thing. You know what I mean? Like you go through those steps. I skipped all that in the blog post. I skipped all that. And that was a big point that I was trying to make is that you can lean on the compiler for that if you're keeping your build clean, right? And that's kind of a – something that I I left unsaid, but should be obvious to anyone is that like, if you're sitting around with warnings in your Xcode, you're doing it wrong, period. I don't care how big your code base is. Take the time to fix that because you're screwing yourself in the long run. But it also means that it, because my build is clean now, I can actually use that information usefully to push me forward. So I can use the errors that the class doesn't exist as a hint to create the class. I can use the warning that pops up after I declare the method. You know what I mean? So I put, I put the method in the header. Now I've got a warning that the method doesn't have an implementation. I don't have to run the tests to tell me that. My build's clean, but I have a warning. I fix the warning, right? You use the compiler as part of your TDD process and it just helps you get through those first few steps that you know you have to do anyway without actually leaning on the real run the tests always kind of stuff you know and those tests typically run slower right yeah like if you're running a ruby test suite i mean it's not like a huge difference but it's going to run a little slower even even in xcode it takes a little bit of time to build and launch the simulator and then run the thing you don't want to spend the time command you and even have it fail on a build you know what I mean? The second you type import my class.h and you get that red warning, my class.h not found. So I do do it the way I said in the blog post where I do write out the whole test, import statement, all the, the way I think the class should act, everything. I just ignore the warnings until the, the first test is finished. And then I go in and I, cr- I fill in those holes. 
I create the file, I define the method, I define the implement a base implementation. Once I get the build clean, then I lean on the test going forward. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that we have that other people don't have, and it's something that we can lean on because of that. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting point in your post. Mike Burton seemed to like it too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Have I rambled enough? Certainly. Certainly. Another hour of testing. It's not a bad thing. No, it's not. Uh, so show notes for this episode are going to be found at podcasts.thoughtbot.com slash build phase slash 36. We'd like to hear from you. So reach out on app.net or Twitter at build phase, or you can email us at build phase at thoughtbot.com. And as always, we appreciate reviews and ratings on iTunes. All right. All right. See you later. Later. All right, now we're done. You don't sing or anything? No, we don't sing or anything. <laughs>